Well, praise God. It's so good to meet together. It's so good to have Tim Mitchell in our midst and, uh, you know, a familiar face with us. And uh, Tim is again pastoring up in uh, Kingston, Ontario, and uh, he's on vacation now. And since he's on vacation, we're going to put him to work next week. And next Sunday afternoon, he's going to be preaching here at the church. So I hope you'll uh, attend and really encourage him. Uh, we're so thankful for you, for you, Tim, and the ministry and how God, again, has moved in your life. It's been such an encouragement. And also, um, uh, two weeks uh, from now, um, Richard Burns is going to be preaching. And he's going to be more, um, more than preaching. He, he'll be teaching a lesson. Richard has been asked uh, through his, his uh, counseling degree, he's been asked to, to uh, teach uh, at a session down in uh, Ohio at a counseling conference. And uh, this is a very prestigious counseling co- uh, conference, but we're going to get to hear his lesson that he's going to be teaching in a couple of weeks. It's on addictions. And uh, so I hope you'll be praying about that. If you have any further questions, Richard will do a better job at explaining what he's going to be uh, preaching and teaching. He's going to be preaching and teaching again about uh, uh, addictions, how how we minister to those who happen to be addicted, what the Word of God says about it. Uh, So again, it's going to be a great great, uh, time, full of light, full full of challenge that happens to be again right there. You know, and I, re- I, I don't know about you, but when you come to the end of uh, uh, John chapter 13, there are so many exciting verses that happen to begin right here, so many comforting verses that happen to begin right here. And I think a lot of times when it comes to God, our hearts are just full, aren't they? You know, after Sunday school this morning, I just wanted to go home and I just wanted to say, yes, yes, this is my God. You know, and just praise him and just honor him. And, um, and it is amazing because I think a lot of times we feel confined, don't we? You know, we want to share Christ, we want to rejoice in Christ, we want to praise Him, uh, but we feel uh, confined, and it might be because of the circumstances, it might be because of the people that happen to be again around us, maybe they even happen to be again believers, but uh, they just seem to be so ascetic. You know, they talk about other people, and that talk goes way further than uh, just sharing a prayer request, just the well-being of those that happen to be again around them, but many times it goes into gossip and slander. You know, and if we happen to be in the midst of that, even hearing that, many times we even feel soiled. We, we, we feel dirty listening to it. And we feel there's no way that we can praise God. There's no way that we can honor him. There's no way that we can glorify him. There's no way that we can open up our hearts because of the circumstances, because of the people that happen to be again around us. And that's what you find halfway through uh, chapter number 13. You know, Jesus has just announced that he has this heavy heart, and he really wants to share everything that happens to be again on his heart. Uh, But there's one in the midst who is a betrayer. There's one in the midst who happens to be playing a hypocrite. You know, and as we look at this passage of Scripture, it's, uh, let me just get it up here. I actually um, uh, have something else up here uh, that I did earlier. So let me just get this up here. I do apologize for this. Here it is here. Uh, and, and we read in verse number 31 these words, and when he had gone out, and in verse number 31 at the beginning, and when it says, and when he had gone out, is speaking of the betrayer, it's speaking of Judas. And Judas, when he walks out, all of a sudden, all of these events will transpire. The next time again we'll see Judas happens to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
you know, where he will betray Jesus with what is known as the Judas kiss. But when he goes out, it's almost like that heaviness that happens to be in the room all of a sudden is taken out. And in chapter, at the end of chapter number 13 and beginning in chapter number 14, and especially in chapter number 14, is what is called the farewell discourse of the Lord Jesus Christ. And many expositors think that this is the greatest sermon that Jesus Christ preached. In fact, some of those expositors would even say this, and I would agree with them, that this is the greatest sermon that was ever preached. You know, and it brings so much comfort. There's so much light. There's so much strength. There's so much joy. As he shares these various different truths with his disciples that they're going to need, not just after the crucifixion of Jesus, but after the resurrection, after his exaltation, and he goes back into, into heaven. And many a weary saint have come to this uh, portion of scripture, this sermon, and found so much comfort, so much light, so much strength to continue on. You know, and what that issues, what that empties into is chapter number 17. And chapter 17 is known as the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you look at that, we're still recipients of that prayer today. It's absolutely amazing, you know, how God the Father, um, uh, how God the Father responded to God the Son. And what you have in that chapter is the greatest prayer that has ever been uttered. You know, the most efficacious prayer that has ever been uttered. But Uh, Tonight, I want us to begin looking at this last section that happens to be in chapter number 13, and especially verses 31 and 32. You know, because in verses 31 and 32, it really gives the purpose of everything, the purpose of everything that is going to take place. You know, we often ask the question, why did Jesus die? And I think the answer that comes off our lips is because we're sinners. And there's a sense that that is true, but there's a higher purpose. What we like to do so often is put ourselves in the center, right? The reason why we have this relationship with Jesus, if we can just figure it out, we we can get all the things that we ever want in our life, all of our desires, all of our dreams, all of our aspirations. And why? Because life is about us. When we come to the word of God, life is about God. It's about his glory. It's about his majesty. It's about his personhood that happens to be right here. You know, and I think the more that we dwell on the gospel, the more that we dwell on the Christ's work of the Lord Jesus, we're led to praise him. We're led to honor him. We're led to worship him. And one of the things I have to ask you as we begin tonight is basically this question. Have you lost that awe of God? Have you lost that wonder that the God of all eternity would come in human flesh and give his life as a perfect ransom for sin? Have you lost that wonder? Have you lost that glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you lost that sense of what it truly is all about? And it's all about him. It's all about a manifestation of our great God. You know, and I hope to instill, I hope to bubble up again a little of that old glory, a little of that old awe, if it happened to be again in you tonight that you might look at that gospel afresh, that you might look at the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and truly seek to honor him. So I want to see this glory from two angles. And the first way, first angle I want, to see, I want us to see is I want us to see the glory of the Savior. And look at what it says right here in verses 31 and 32. It says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. And glorify him all at once. Now, when you look at this verse, 
you know, it seems like a strange verse. And what I'm talking about is, is verse number 21. I don't think it's, it's hard to interpret what Jesus means. I just think it's strange. You know, and I think it's strange because right after Judas leaves, we have these words. Now is the Son glorified. You know, and think of it, because what he's talking about, and everybody knows it. You know, all those of, of us that are reading this gospel realize that he's talking about the crucifixion. And what we have in the crucifixion, because Jesus is the greatest person that has ever lived in human flesh, is you have the greatest humiliation, right? You have the greatest, again, humiliation. Jesus Christ is humiliated. And yet he says right here, now is the Son, here it is, glorified. You know, it seems like it's out of place. It seems like Jesus should have uttered these words at his baptism, right? We have the Spirit lighting on him. And then we have the voice of the Father that has been in heaven. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And we would think that Jesus would say this. Now is the Son glorified. You know, or maybe, again, at the transfiguration. At the transfiguration, we see the godness we see the deity we see again that person of christ the christ the second person that that shekinah glory shine from him you know and and it leaves a wonder even in his disciples you know as you look at that even this even the three disciples that happen to be gathered there saying well, we we should build altars i mean they're taken up with this glory and you would think jesus would say at that time now is the son of man glorified but what he does is he says, now, at this time, now that Judas leaves and all of these events start to transpire, right? Right. When Judas leaves, it's almost like the point of no return. All of these things are going to happen, and it's going to end in Jesus' crucifixion. And the way Jesus views his crucifixion is the greatest glorification. You know, and various different authors, again, say, say the same thing. A.W. Pink uh, comments on this passage. He says, the most remarkable word was this. The Lord spoke of his death, but he regarded it neither as martyrdom nor as a disgrace. There is nothing quite like this in the other Gospels. Here, as ever, John gives us the highest, the divine viewpoint of things. The Savior contemplates his death on the shameful tree as his glorification. That's quite a statement. You know, here's a longer quote. This is by Richard Phillips. But this is what he says. This plainly states that Jesus saw his coming, uh, coming cross as his glorification. What irony this involves. In the eyes of men, Jesus' crucifixion was the lowest humiliation. Think of it. The soldiers mocked him with a crown of thorns and a scarlet robe. Matthew records how they reviled him. Hail, king of the Jews! And they spit on him and took a reed and struck him on the head. Many still today think Jesus a weak and pathetic figure as he meekly embraces, embraced his torment and murder. But in reality, is that, but the reality is that the cross of Christ is mankind's deepest humiliation, not Christ's. God sent his beloved son, full of light and sinful man, abused him with all his deadly scorn. Here the judgment is proved. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Now listen to what he says next. Yet in the midst of that dreadful scene, 
Jesus found his highest glorification. Now is the, and you can almost hear the triumphant sound of this, you know, as Judas leaves. Now is the Son of Man glorified. He is exalted. And let me give you one other quote. And the reason why I'm giving you all these quotes is I don't want us to miss this. This is absolutely grand. And this is by James Montgomery Boyce. And Boyce writes this, Nothing has happened in the world's history from the beginning of creation until now or will ever happen before that day when all things are wrapped up in Christ is as significant as the crucifixion. In other words, he's saying the most important event in all human history, the most dynamic event that has ever taken place is the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ in which the Son is glorified. Now, think of it. Because I think a lot of times we use biblical words and we don't know what they mean. We just use them. Isn't it true? Now, now, now here's the question. What does it mean to be glorified? You know, what, what does that word mean? When he says, now is the Son glorified, what does that mean? You know, you can see it. Let me just read the verse again to get it clear. In your mind. When he had gone out, speaking of Judas, Jesus said, right? Because all these events will come. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now, let me just say before we go on, you know, the passage up in this, this, this point has been really dark. It's been really heavy. You know, the disciples have been struggling. You know, one of them is a betrayer. Who is it betraying? They've been heavy in heart. None of them wanted to wash one another's feet. And they're wondering, you know, am I the betrayer? Am I the one? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? And it's really, really a heavy passage of Scripture. But like I said, once Judas leaves, it's almost like the clouds start to part. And Jesus, again, is triumphant. Now, that, that heaviness of heart that Jesus felt will come back in Gethsemane. But this time, there's such light. There's such triumphant uh, a sound that happens to come from him. You know, it reminds me, again, over in Matthew chapter 13, and verse number 58, uh, we're told in that passage of Scripture that Jesus could not do any miracles in the area of Nazareth because of their unbelief. And it doesn't mean this, that Jesus had the inability. There's no way that he could do because they didn't believe on him. What it means is that it would be inappropriate. And the truths that are shared in the next number of chapters, and let me just say that we're going to be looking for probably the next couple of years at the next number of chapters. You know, the truths that are shared in the next number of chapters, you know, he couldn't share. He didn't want to share. It would be inappropriate with the betrayer that happened to be right here. But there's such a light. These are mine. These are mine. And nothing can separate me from them. And he wants to share it. And here's the question again. What is glorification? When we say that we glorify something or someone, what do we mean? And yet, you have to realize what glorification is. Glorification is basically this. There is something that is made manifest. In other words, made known, seen, revealed. You know, and we see the excellency, we see the worth, we see the beauty of something so much so that it leads us to praise, to honor, to worship that thing or that person. 
So think of the glorification of God. What is the glorification of God? There's a revealing of the character, of the personhood of God that leads to worship, that leads to awe, that leads to, again, uh, God being our all. And the question is, what is it here? And it happens to be, again, the crucifixion. And how is that? You know, and I think there's a, there's a hint in there. Uh, because um, the title that Jesus uses for himself is the Son of Man, which is a peculiar title. You know, when you look, when you look at it, it was Jesus' f- favorite title of himself, right? He called himself the Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man. Now, here's a question. Who else calls Jesus the Son of Man? Anyone know? Anyone know? Only one time. Anyone know? What's that? Daniel? No, 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 no. I'm talking about New Testament. Thank you. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, no, no. Here it is. Here it is. It's Stephen at his martyrdom. Remember the clouds part? And what do we see? The Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. I mean, it's absolutely incredible, isn't it? You know, and let me just say this. This title, Son of Man, is also used uh, just to speak of humanity. You know, we're all what? Sons, we're all daughters of humanity. In fact, even if you look through the book of Ezekiel, when you look through the book of Ezekiel, you'll see over and over that uh, God calls Ezekiel the Son of Man. Son of Man, speak. Son of Man, write. But right here, we realize beyond a shadow of a doubt that this happens to be a messianic uh, title. You know, and it's used even as uh, Todd said in Daniel chapter 7, beginning of verse number 13. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now think of it. Because we realize that he is the great ruler, the great coming ruler, that he'll rule in his millennial kingdom and beyond. And we realize that is who Jesus is. But right here he's talking about his crucifixion. And what he's saying beyond a shadow of a doubt is that his crucifixion, here it is, is a victory. It's a victory over Satan. It's a victory over sin. It's a victory over death. You know, in all of this, when you look at this victory of this cosmic victory of Jesus Christ, it ends in his glorification. And I wonder how many times we dwell on the crucifixion and really the crucifixion and how Jesus is magnified in that, how he's glorified in that as the eternal king who purchases our redemption. You see, there is extreme glory that is brought through the one who is worthy of that extreme glory. But there's also a glory brought to the Father. And you can see this in verses 31 and 32. And let's read those verses again. You know, it says in verse number 31, when he went out, speaking again of Judas, Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So there's a dual exaltation, right? So after Judas leaves, 
Jesus announces, you know, and you can almost now see him triumphantly. Now the Son of Man is glorified. And then he announces that the Father is going to be glorified in him too. Now here's the question. How is God the Father glorified in the Son through the crucifixion? And I would ask Ken Baird to come up and present those 15 things that you mentioned this morning about God because all of those could be applied. I was thinking about that uh, as you were bringing them up. All of them can be applied to the gospel. All of them can be applied to the cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single one of those things can be applied in how God was made manifest. But what I'm going to do tonight is I'm just going to pick two of them. You know, and let me just say, if we went through, there's way more than 15, by the way, and you know that. You know, it's, incre- it's incredible to look at. We could be here all night talking about the glorification of the Father through the work of the Son. But let me give you two. You know, and one of the ways that God the Father is glorified is he's shown at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ as absolutely righteous. You know, and I think we think about that, but many times we do not think deeply enough about that, so much so that it grabs our heart. You know, because think about it, that's the age-old problem, isn't it? You know, how does God show us mercy? How does God show us grace? How does God love those who are sinful? You know, if he all of a sudden turns his back on our sin, then he's saying there's something of greater value than him. And he, he actually is not God. You know, the glorious God, the great God that happens to be again above. And it's the age-old question, isn't it? How does an all-holy, all-righteous, all-just God pardon our iniquities? You know, and, and, and it's incredible because it's found... Uh, right in the gospel, isn't it? In fact, in Romans chapter 3, beginning of verse number 24, it answers that question. And this cross work of Jesus Christ magnifies the Father. It says, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Here's the cross. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Propitiation, satisfaction, right? A satisfaction, again, of the righteousness, of the justice, of the holiness of God. How did it take place? By his blood. How do do we receive it? To be received by faith. And then he tells us the whole purpose of that. Remember, the purpose is in us. Purpose is God. This was to show what? God's righteousness. This is the manifestation, a revelation of God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, right? He passed over the sins of people like David, people like Moses, people like Abraham. I mean, their sins are right in the word of God. And he goes on and says this. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that, think about it, it's God central, isn't it? It's not us central. So that he might be just, and here it is, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Isn't that an amazing gospel? I mean, think about it. God is just, isn't he? He's righteous. But at the same time, he's gracious and merciful. He is the justifier of any and all who believe in Jesus. Because what's the great problem with sin? The great problem of sin is God needs to be appeased. God needs to be satisfied. God needs to be propitiated. You know, and we talk about the wrath of God, and think about the wrath of God, because there's two themes when it comes to our relationship with God that are taught throughout the Old Testament. 
And one's called blessing, and the other's called cursing, right? And how do we know the blessing of God? We know the blessing of God through this, the presence of God in our life. How do we know in the Old Testament the cursing of God? And here it is, because there is a distance between the sinner and this holy God, right? That's what you see. We saw that through a reading of Ezekiel, right? In Ezekiel chapter 10, you have the spirit departing. And it's quite a dramatic scene, right? He's here, and all of a sudden, he hovers over the Holy of Holies. All of a sudden, he leaves the Holy of Holies. All of a sudden, he leaves the temple. All of a sudden, he leaves the gate of Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, he goes to the mountain just outside of Jerusalem. And there's a look back, and then he departs. You know, and he's gone. And why? Because of the idolatry that happens to be in Israel. There's a distance, you know? And all, all of a sudden, there's 70 years of captivity. And the passage that we've been reading for the last several weeks speaks of, here it is, the Spirit of God coming back. God coming back. You know, the sacrifices being instituted, the priesthood being instituted again. God is near his people, right? Here it is. Blessing, cursing. Think of what happened to Jesus you think of Jesus and his humanity and think of the relationship that he had with his father. I mean, there was unencumbered fellowship and delight all the way through his life with the father that happened to be above. He had the spirit without measure that happened to be in him. And there happens to be, again, an intimacy. And then what happens? He's handed over to the Romans. What's significant about that? Gentiles are out Siders, right? He's condemned to death and he's brought outside the city, right? Darkness is over the whole face, again, of that land, over the whole face. And what's it speak? It speaks of distance from God. And then you hear those words from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why? Because here's the curse. Here's the curse. Here's the curse. The son is cursed. In our place. And what does that show us? It shows us beyond a shadow. Let me just end it. Let me just end that whole story because at the end he says, it is finished. And then he says this. Then he says this because it's finished. Right? Fellowship is restored. Into, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's wonderful, right? Right? Distance. Right? Here it is, closeness. And what does that do? That glorifies the Father's righteousness. Nobody questions ever that sin has not been paid for. Justice has not been done. Right? And all we can do is go, oh, look at my God. You know, that's one way. There's another way that this father is magnified he's glorified it's it sends us again to such an awe and that is that we see beyond a shadow of a doubt that this great god that happens to be in heaven is faithful to all of his promises think about it think about if you were living in the old testament and you had the book of genesis and genesis three fifteen, right right the servant's gonna what the servant's gonna bruise his heel but there's going to be one that comes from the offspring of man that's going to give him the death blow. Right on the head. Right? And generation, generation, century 
after century after century, millennia after millennia go by, and no savior. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes, the Messiah. And we see this death blow is done to Satan, done to sin, done to death itself. And was it proved beyond a shadow of a doubt? It proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is faithful. It's amazing, isn't it? You know, we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 20, it says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it's through him that we utter amen to God for his, listen to what it says, glory. Right? We're not making God glorious. He is glorious, but it's just a recognition of what he has done and who he is. Now, like, like I say, I could take your Sunday school lesson. If I had it right here, we could talk about the wisdom of God. We could talk about the sovereignty of God at the cross. We could talk about the holiness of God at the cross. We could talk about, again, all of the various different attributes of God. And let me just say this. There's a sense where God just has one attribute. Did you realize that? There's a sense, and you're saying he's crazy now. Uh, all of the other attributes, let's take his holiness. Well, he's holy in sovereignty. He's holy in wisdom. He's holy unchangeable, right? Let's say he's just unchangeable. He's unchangeable in holiness. He's unchangeable in knowledge. He's unchangeable in his presence. And there's a sense where we could say God is just one. He's just simple. One attribute, because why? All of the other attributes describe all of the other attributes. I mean, it is amazing, isn't it? But anyways, I'm getting off, off uh, topic. But we can discuss all of this and go, wow, look at my God. And I think a lot of times we struggle with, again, the age-old question, why does sin enter the world? And there's mysteries that happen to be right there. But one of the answers that Scripture gives us is one of the reasons why God permitted sin to enter the world is because of the manifestation of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is who Christ is. This is who I am. Laud me and worship me. It's about him. And I can imagine Jesus at this time. You know, the heaviness will return in the garden, but I can imagine after Judas left, you know, the glory of it. The awesomeness of it just overwhelmed his heart. You know, and I think there's joy that happened to be in this statement. You know, the joy that Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 2 talks about when it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what did he do? Endure the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand. Of the throne of God. I think in passages like this, in fact, I know in passages like this, there's so much joy. There's so much confidence that this gives us in this Christian life, no matter what we are going through. It really does. Anyways, my time is really done. So let's look at verse number 32 very quickly. It says, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now the question is, you know, how does the Father glorify the Son? And we said again, it's, it's at the crucifixion. We could also say in this verse, takes in his resurrection and his exaltation, and we would be right. But there's that verse that happens to be right there, right at the end where it says, and glorify him at once. 
And it not only talks about the vindication, we talk about the resurrection, we talk about the exaltation of the Lord Jesus being the vindication, but there is a sense in the crucifixion of Jesus that God, through his providence, vindicated the Son. Have you, have you ever looked at all of the accounts of all of the people that happen to be again around the cross? And the vindication of the Son? Sinclair Ferguson wrote an excellent uh, a book. It's called Lessons from the Upper Room, and this is what he writes in it. He says, Jesus will be tried, condemned, and summarily executed as a criminal. Yet the gospel writers indicate, listen to what he says, a paradox that occurs at every stage of the process. Listen to what it is. Jesus' accusers acknowledge that he is not guilty. The Sanhedrin cannot make their charges stick, and their witnesses contradict one another. Look, look, here's the next stage. Pilate can find no fault in him. Here's the next stage. The crowd, baying for his execution, cannot prove him guilty. Here's the next stage. A condemned criminal recognizes that this man has done nothing wrong. Here's the next stage. Even the centurion in charge of the execution squad confesses, truly, this man was the son of God. He goes on and says this. The repeated confession of his innocence runs through the accounts of Jesus' passion like a coded message. Those who condemned him become the mouthpiece of another verdict that will be publicly announced by God in his resurrection. Then his perfect sinlessness and complete obedience will be made known. Then he will be raised to life by the glory of the Father to share in his glory. Let me tell you, there's so much enjoyment in Jesus Christ. There really is. There's so much confidence in life that we can have. And let me ask you that question. Have you lost your awe? Have you lost your awe? Have you lost that glory of the gospel? Let me challenge you. It's right here. Look at it. I, I will guarantee it will change your life. Praise God. Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. Father God, what an amazing passage. What an amazing gospel. What an amazing glory. So often, Lord, we want to make life about our, us. We want to make ourselves as the pinnacle, as the center of the story. And yet we realize, Lord, there is one who is the center of the story. We realize there is one that is worthy of all glory, all the accolades, Lord, all of the praise. Lord, that there is a majestic one, that his character is so stunning, Lord, the more that we read about it, the more that we become in awe of this one. And we thank you, Lord, for your, your glory. We thank you for the manifestation of that glory through your Son, we just pray, Lord, that you would encapture our hearts and rapture our hearts with Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you so much for your bigness. We thank you so much for your majesty. Just be with us now as we go to our song service. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Brother.